This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Department of Veterans Affairs has a nominee to become Deputy Secretary. Donald Remy's the Chief Operating Officer and Chief Legal Officer at the NCAA now. He's a retired Army Captain and former Assistant to the General Counsel of the Army. Sustainment costs for the F-35 program are going up despite efforts from the Pentagon and Lockheed Martin to drive them down. The Government Accountability Office finds sustainment costs over the 66-year life of the program are up $170 billion from 2012. GAO finds if the department doesn't cut the cost per aircraft, each plane will cost $6 billion a year more than the services say they can afford in 2036. The Internal Revenue Service is still catching up with helping taxpayers after a year of remote work because of the pandemic. The Treasury Inspector General for Tax Administration reports a 146% increase in demand for online services and 24.6 million calls to a toll-free line for stimulus check information. NextGov reports taxpayers abandoned more than half of those calls because the automated information answered their questions or they got frustrated and hung up. The numbers are in for the latest Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey. Employee engagement and job satisfaction both up. Michael Regas is former acting director of the Office of Personnel Management, former deputy director at OPM. Number of uh, things jumped out at me in these numbers this year, Mike. We'll talk about those in a moment. What's your number one or maybe top two takeaways from the FEVs numbers that came out yesterday? Well, um, I think they're really outstanding, Francis. Uh, we had the highest increase ever across the board in uh, improvements um, in the 37 measures that uh, the FEVs measured that uh, that have a um, that that go back in time. Uh, we were we improved in 100% of those numbers from the 2016 numbers. And in 31 of those numbers, uh, they were all-time highs. So I'm really very proud of the team at uh, OPM and what we were able to accomplish in the last year. A number of takeaways from me uh, that in looking at these numbers for the 13th or 14th year in a row, Mike, one of them is the fact um, FCW reports 624,800 people took it this year. That's a yeah. pretty decent response rate. Gives you pretty good confidence, I imagine, that the numbers yes. are are really the numbers. Yes, yeah, and that's another indicator of uh, employee engagement. And I think one of the things that uh, I made sure to do as OPM director and was one of, I think, the salutary effects, although I think we've, I've spoken previously about, I don't think really that uh, the OPM director ought to be dual-headed with the deputy director for management, but I think one of the salutary effects of me having had both of those roles uh, last year was that I was able to use my position as the deputy director for management to work with all of the deputy secretaries across government to uh, encourage them to also increase their levels of engagement with their employees since we were all in a maximum uh, telework environment to make sure they were communicating what was going on with their agencies and what was expected of their workforce. Uh, one of the uh, uh, elements of this that appears to be very successful is uh, direct reports too. Uh, Federal Times reports today overall employee engagement scores 
rose 4% with an 80% uh, satisfaction with supervisors driving the peak of that success compared to top-level agency leadership, 62% engagement score. What's happening, do you think, at the employee-to-manager level in the pandemic context to be able to drive that? These people aren't seeing each other face-to-face, -face, Mike. Right, right. Yeah, and I think as anyone knows who's ever worked in a large org organization or studied uh, organizational behavior and management, culture in any organization comes from the top down. The top tier sets the culture and that filters down. And I think you also see that um, in the question that says, in my organization, senior leaders generate high levels of motivation and connection to the workforce. And that senior leaders is effectively a proxy for the political leadership at agencies. Uh, and that also had the highest score ever recorded. Uh, it went up 5.7 points this past year. And over the last four years went up 9.7 points, basically 10 points since 2016. And, and that is just a measure of, I think, uh, the personnel and management policies that we implemented to reward high performing employees, which I think most federal employees are, and they wanna see, as, as I think we're gonna talk about next, maybe what are some of the areas of improvement that employees continue to be frustrated that not enough is being done to deal with poor performing employees, even though we did have a tremendous increase in that number in the FEVs, another record uh, all-time high number there. It's still an area that requires a lot of improvement in the federal government. Where I want to go next, actually, Mike, is the big disparity in um, the numbers for folks who teleworked versus mm -hmm. folks who didn't. Uh, another Federal Times story, overall employee engagement uh, scores for uh, employees who telework three days or more a week, 76%. Employees who couldn't telework, 62.5%. Are, are we getting to the point where we're going to put the telework debate to rest finally, that this is a tool that makes employees more engaged in their jobs and not less? Well, I think, you know, a flip side, I think telework is definitely going to be on the front burner in terms of an area of discussion. But if you think about employees who were not teleworking this past year, they were going into places of work that were largely desolate because most of their colleagues were teleworking. Now, there are some jobs in, uh, in the defense community, in the intelligence community, Border Patrol, other folks which require someone to be physically present either to do their job or for security reasons, they have to go on the job. But even those scores also rose. People who were not teleworking saw an increase in their engagement as well. Um, but I think it, it really, how we tackle telework going forward uh, needs to be managed on an agency by agency basis. And it really depends on the nature of the work being done. Uh, and I think we're seeing that uh, more telework can be done across the federal government. Um, just about a, a little more than a minute left. Uh, you referenced poor performers earlier. 42% of respondents uh, this year saying steps taken in regard to poor performance, um, up from 34% in 2019. What do you think drove yep. that, Mike? Well, uh, we that was one of the areas where uh, our administration really took decisive action to address the issue of poor performing employees while still maintaining all of the statutory and civil service and due process protections and appeal rights. It streamlined the process so that uh, agencies across the board, which had multiple and disparate ways of treating um, performance issues would treat them in a more uniform way and adhere to the statutory requirements. And I think that message trickled down to supervisors that they would have the support of management in dealing with poor performing employees and the, their colleagues who are working hard and want to see everyone pulling their weight were encouraged by that effort. Michael Regas, thanks very much for joining me. I appreciate your time.
Thank you, Francis. Up next, the government's modernization effort could go horribly wrong. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the biggest pitfalls and how to avoid them. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. President Biden's new skinny budget request includes $500 million for the Technology Modernization Fund. That money would be on top of the billion dollars the fund got in the last coronavirus stimulus bill. Jen Palka is former Deputy Chief Technology Officer of the United States. She's writing on Medium about how the government can avoid big mistakes in spending the money. Jen, welcome back. It's great to see you again. You write in this piece, for those who've been wishing for this for years, we're in a big be careful what you wish for moment. Why so, Jen? Well, modernization is super important. And we saw the impact of things like the state unemployment insurance uh, systems failing over the coronavirus pandemic uh and it you know means a lot to people so it's gonna it's gonna be high on everyone's agenda um it's just really important that we think about doing this right so now there's the money for it let's look back and see what's worked and what hasn't and do this the right way because the money and the people are now there you're connecting the uh, plan or the thoughts about a plan to spend this money to a book that you read recently called Kill It With Fire, Marianne Bellotti. Why? What's the connection that you see there, Jen? Marianne wrote a book about legacy modernization. She has done legacy modernization in a bunch of contexts, but most particularly recently in the United States Digital Service. So she knows what we're talking about here. And what she's saying is we can't go back and keep doing this in a waterfall way. And what I would add to that is we can't keep just adding on all of the features that were in there before. We need the leadership on the policy and the operations side from these agencies and departments to come to the table and say, you know, the same way we refactor the code uh, to make something simpler and run faster. That's why you're not using Windows 95 anymore, right? Well, hopefully you're not. Um, we need to refactor that policy and that process that goes into this. And that's actually how we get a modernized system that really works for people, whether it's unemployment insurance or whatever other function it is. Aren't agencies getting better at using an iterative approach? Are they doing it the wrong way? What's your sense of, of what the challenge is right now? I think they are getting better. And I think we've got a lot of wonderful people in leadership right now. Um, Claire Martirana as our new federal CIO is just wonderful news. Um, we've got the amazing uh, new leadership coming in, hopefully, at the GSA with Robin Carnahan. Um, and agencies are sort of getting the message. I think that the danger here is it's very hard to do. It's very hard to create empowered cross-disciplinary teams who can do this together in a non-siloed way. So they really have to pay attention. And the other danger is that this has to happen fast. This money is coming at states in particular, and they've got to use it. And so the easiest thing to do is sort of throw it out the door in the same way that they threw it out last time. And I mentioned in the piece, in unemployment insurance, we had about half the states technically had modernized leading up to this you know, crisis and the pandemic. Well, if it didn't help them, then that's not the right way to do it. And we need to take a breath and stop and not send it out the door in the way that we had in the past and really think about how we build that cross-disciplinary team with other players at the table with a bigger agenda. And I mean bigger as in smaller in scope with a clear goal, but bigger in terms of who's at the table and 
what we're actually trying to achieve long-term, which has to be not just moving to a new platform, but really building the capacity of that department or their agency to do this long-term. You get at one of the issues that people talk about here in Washington, especially about legacy technology in this piece. When you referenced your experience with the California unemployment system, you wrote, it drove home how little it would matter to, quote, just get them off the mainframes. Just getting rid, shedding legacy technology, something we talk about on this program a lot, we talk about in the city a lot. What's wrong with that idea? Well, I saw it very clearly in California. Um, you really have a problem with the system not scaling. And our team went in there and dug in really deep and figured out which parts of the system weren't scaling. It wasn't the mainframe. It was identity verification. It was really mundane things like they couldn't get through all of the mail that was coming in the door. That's what was keeping people from getting their unemployment insurance checks, which they so desperately needed. So that is what the teams need to focus on first thing, not moving them off the mainframe. Once you get those teams in there and they start to understand the often very complex, very fragile, interconnected systems that these things really are, they're not one monolith, they're, they're a bunch of different things that have accrued over decades, then you're in a much better position to say, okay, we can start thinking long-term about how to move this system off of a mainframe, but that's not what we should be doing today, especially when we still have people who aren't getting their unemployment checks, we still got problems in that system. And let's think about that when we understand these systems better, which means getting in there and doing the immediate thing that needs to be done right now. Yeah, the the book, uh, the author that you cite in this piece, Ms. Bellotti, uh, you point out, um, frames that, which one moves the needle further? That's the question yeah. that uh, people should be asking, right, Jen? We hear really often, oh, we're doing a legacy modernization product, uh, you know, process. We say, great, what's the goal? And they say, to modernize. It's not a goal. And I think uh, Marianne Bellotti does a great job of explaining how to set a goal that's actually going to bring your team together and help you make decisions that they can move forward quickly. Because we need to move fast. We just Jen, need to move thoughtfully. Jen, thanks very much for coming on. It's a great piece. Great to have you back on the show. Thanks so much. Wonderful to see you again. You can find a link to that piece at govmatters.tv slash resources. Up next, the future of the defense industrial base. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the rules of the road for acquisitions and how they may change. Reminder, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Mike Brown is President Biden's choice to become Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment. If the Senate confirms him, consolidation in the defense industrial base is one thing he will need to watch. Jerry McGinn is Executive Director of the Center for Government Contracting at George Mason University. He's former Principal Deputy Director for Manufacturing and Industrial Base at DOD, and he's writing about, writing about consolidation in defense news. Jerry, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What do you see across the landscape that Mr. Brown will walk into if the Senate confirms him for ANS? Well, it's great to be back, Francis, and uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, I think uh, the, the selection of um, Mike Brown is a tremendous choice uh, on a number of levels. For the uh, M&A landscape, I think it, it, he is an experienced hand. He's been CEO of a major company uh, in Silicon Valley. He's worked uh, closely 
with the members on the Hill, as well as in the building for the last several years uh, in the Defense Innovation Unit. So I think he's a, uh, a really inspired choice. And I think uh, he'll be, he's a good signal that uh, mergers acquisitions will um, be conducted on a case by, reviewed on a case by case basis as they have been under both Republican and Democratic administrations uh, going forward. The most recent case that's in the headlines, there are a number of them, but the highest profile yep. one you reference in this piece, yep. uh, the Lockheed Martin uh, proposed purchase of Aerojet Rocketdyne. You compare that to uh, Northrop Grumman and Orb Orbital ATK several years ago. What are the parallels that you see there and what do those parallels bode, do you think, for the rest of the M&A landscape? Uh, great question, Francis. Yeah, it's it's a very similar transaction. Uh, prior to um, uh, the Orbital ATK Northrop Grumman transaction, there were two independent rock, solid rocket motor producers, um, Orbital ATK and Aerojet Rocket Ion. Uh, and Northrop um, purchased um, um, Orbital ATK, and that was approved with a um, consent decree that allowed, uh, made um, uh, Northrop Grumman agree to be a merchant supplier for solid rocket motors going forward for 10 years. And uh, Lockheed Martin Aerojet Rocket has a very similar kind of deal. Uh, the concerns raised by members of the launch providers such as Boeing or Raytheon are similar in both cases. Um, but uh, so the government has to look at that um, to see what kind of impact it has on competition. Uh, the difference on, in this specific case is that Aerojet Rocket has always been the the weaker or the struggling um, rocket producer, um, and Orbital ATK was was stronger. So this actually there's financial um, reasons for this merger that um, uh, that really strengthened the the overall rocket pr provider kind of marketplace. So you're still going to have two competitors um, in this space, and I think the outcome is likely to be the same, which would be a consent decree for Lockheed Martin to uh, make sure that they provide rock, um, rocket motors to um, all the launch providers um, in the marketplace. Regarding the broader landscape of M&A in the defense industrial base, you write in this defense news piece, uh, steady as she goes is the best course of action. That's based on your experience that you write. What does that look like in the context of the, the way the market, the way the landscape looks today, Jerry? Yeah, uh, great question, Francis. You see, there's a lot of um, uh, emphasis now on on Capitol Hill on both sides actually concerned about big tech quote unquote uh, and uh, you know the companies that have become uh, too big and, and concerning and so there's been discussions on maybe we need to uh, adjust antitrust rules um, and I, I don't think that's the right approach I mean if the comp if um, members are concerned or the government's concerned about those kind of companies they have other tools such so as section 230 which has been discussed um, and um, and other kind of incentives that can do it so I think the the how they review mergers is through the antitrust lens, and I think that should continue. Um, and um, we have robust examples of large and small transactions that have been adequately reviewed, and in many cases, in some cases, denied when there was a direct impact on competition. So I, I see the um, the market is is uh, maintaining that. Uh, and the exciting thing about Mike Brown is that Mike is going to, his focus on bringing in new companies to the defense industrial base, I think coming in in the role of a, uh, Undersecretary for ANS, he's got the opportunity to help those companies scale, help to really bring in new competitors through um, through innovative efforts, you know, scaling beyond uh, the transactions authorities so some of these newer companies can uh, compete on larger programs. You uh, right here, Jerry, mer mergers and acquisitions are central contributors to the health of the aerospace and defense market. Are there enough of those small companies 
coming along underneath the, you know, at the lower levels of the dib to become candidates in the future to continue to perpetuate uh, the mergers and acquisitions market. Uh, that that um, that's precisely the issue. That's again why I'm excited about Mike because uh, we've almost had a, a new valley of death occur where you've got all these efforts of innovation through other transactions or other um, kind of contract vehicles competitions um, that help companies get started, but then having the key is getting the scale. Jerry, we have about a minute left. Are there enough small companies entering the bottom of the defense industrial base with all the efforts the Pentagon's put into that over the last several years to perpetuate the dib the way that you uh, suggest that it needs to be perpetuated in this piece? Yeah, I think there are definitely, uh, uh, There's. it's had an impact on the number of companies coming in. So I think that's very positive. The key now is to help companies, the, the successful companies scale. Uh, we need more SpaceX's or Blue Origins uh, companies that make that transition. Uh, and I think having Mike Brown, who's worked with these companies in Silicon Valley and elsewhere um, at the helm is really gonna help build that industrial base and help uh, refresh kind of the middle tier uh, and even potentially larger companies in the defense industrial base. So I'm, I'm very excited about to see what happens in the next four years. Jerry McGinn, thanks very much for joining us. Great to have you back on the program. Great to see you, Francis. I'm Sharice Hanner. Government Matters is always one click away whenever you want to get the latest in the business of government. Like us on Facebook, subscribe on YouTube, follow us on Twitter, and connect with us on LinkedIn. While you're on the go, tune into the Government Matters podcast on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and TuneIn. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. You have been listening to the Government Matters podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes about how government can use software to find wide area networks to deliver the best digital experience for constituents and staff. Government agencies are continuing the transition to the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions Vehicle, EIS, for telecom-related services. Industry experts are calling on agencies to use it for citizen-facing government. Tony Bardo is here. He's Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes Network Solutions. Tony, welcome. It's good to talk to you again. What does the EIS vehicle provide for agencies to make these kinds of transitions, to do the network modernization that they need to do? It's a great question, uh, as you always do lead off with, uh, Francis, and it's good to see you again, talk to you again. But uh, here's, it's more interesting really to talk about what it hasn't uh, delivered yet. And uh, GSA fa faced an interesting conundrum when they were 
of putting EIS together and it was necessary to do so and they had the right vision for it and the right ideas to bring in some new blood and new new vendors and new kinds of companies but the the services available to to the government at the time were still the same services that have been around for 20 years um, and that is the the MPLS network um, services that worked during the end of FTS 2001 and throughout the networks contract. So um, the, the, the new services, the new modern services were just emerging. These are the new SD-WAN, the managed broadband services, and these are the kinds of services that are better equipped for handling the large surge and surges of bandwidth demand for the agencies, particularly at the edge. So what was what the agencies were sort of presented with was, here's a new contract and it's got a new timetable and it's got a new scope of work and a new span of work and a new body of, 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 uh, of a performance period, but it didn't really have the new services that met the goal or the, the mantra of transforming. So what we saw in some of the early um, fair opportunities that uh, that the agencies were issuing, and it really took them a long time to start issuing them, um, but they 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 were basically asking for like for like services, and that wasn't really a a plan for transforming, and it didn't. The, many of the fair opportunities, unfortunately, did not show the the vision for transforming. SD-WAN was emerging, so it was a tough call. It was a, you know, we've got to get this contract, new contract out because the old contract is aging, it's expiring, it's got its uh, limited time frame. So it was an interesting, um, you ask an interesting question. It, it, the platform really wasn't ready there to, to, uh, to transform and leap into transformation and modernization. It's starting to happen, though. You uh, gave me a term before we started recording, and I want to tell, want you to tell me what it means and why it's important. Managed service provider, why does that matter to agencies, and, and why is that concept helpful to them in these transitions, Tony? The concept, concept is really helpful because the, the, pro, the providers and the services and managing them um, makes it easier for the agencies. These, these agency telecom managers have really got it tough. They 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 have this they have this contract that they were uh, compelled to use and and encouraged to use, and they wanted to modernize. Uh, they're running their own networks today every day. They have to issue these fair opportunities to compete the business among the uh, providers, the the prime uh, contractors on EIS. And they've got to do it all at the same time and all with the same workload and workforce that they that they have. So these are really, really tough. Getting obtaining managed services takes the burden off of the limited staffs of the agencies and lets the lets the um, service providers do the work. So managed service providers can then um, offer these services, manage the networks, manage the uh, security aspects of the networks, manage the routing of the traffic on the networks through the modern architectures 
of broadband, managed broadband, and managed SD-WAN. Tony, there's always more great ideas to talk about than there is time to talk about them. It's great to talk to you again. Thanks very much. Thank you, Francis. Take care.